Hi everyone, welcome once again to Dan1132. I'm Jim Wittivine and it's good to be here with you once again. Episode 13. And this week I'm going to be continuing a discussion that we started a couple of weeks ago about the issue of transhumanism. And a couple of weeks ago we spoke about Julian Huxley, who was the man who coined the term uh, transhumanism and who whose thought has has been very influential throughout the decades and who had a, a, a large role to play in the development of the transhumanist ideology. And this week, I want to talk about a man named Arthur Kessler. Now, Arthur Kessler, you've probably not heard that name, but Arthur Kessler was a an author. He was an intellectual, uh, what they call a public intellectual, I guess, uh, a British man who uh, came from uh, communist Eastern Europe, in the early 20th century, and who became very influential in the intellectual circles of Great Britain. I discovered Arthur Kessler probably last year, uh, a book that he had written called Darkness at Noon, which was a a well-known book, uh, a novel uh, about totalitarianism uh, along the lines of 1984 or or Brave New World, not as well-known as those other books, but also very influential. And Arthur Kessler, some details about Arthur Kessler. He was born in 1905. Uh, He died in 1983. In 1940, he published the book Darkness at Noon, that anti-totalitarian novel. And uh, he worked with, this is interesting, he worked with the British Information Research Department. The British Information Research Department was the British Cold War Propaganda Department. So they supported and published and funded uh, anti-communist propaganda, including, uh, interestingly enough, left-wing propaganda, uh, propaganda by what we would call liberals, I guess, uh, propaganda against communism from the left. And what's particularly interesting is that the British Information Research Department also uh, had as as members, as people who were involved in it, uh, men like George Orwell, something that I, I didn't know until recently, and also Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell is another important figure in the 20th century uh, whose, uh, whose influence is still felt very much today. And we'll be talking about Bertrand Russell in future episodes. But it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how these public intellectuals had these roles uh, being supported by government to produce propaganda in that era, and I'm sure it continues today. In 1968, he published a book called Ghost in the Machine, or The Ghost in the Machine. And that's the book I'm going to be talking about today in this episode, and uh, going through a little bit of what he says in this book. The first part is, is largely his discussion of the materialist or behaviorist understanding of human nature gets uh, gets very complicated and very complex. But it's in the second part of the book where his philosophy, his uh, his ideology, really comes to the fore, especially in terms of transhumanism. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us to the present day, and uh, I'm going to read with you an article that was published in August of last year, which talks about the possible use of morality pills to control 
the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, so that, that makes this very much a, a current issue. This isn't just a history lesson. This is this I want what I want to show is how these thinkers influence what we are experiencing today and the kind of move the kinds of movements that are ongoing today. So Arthur Kessler in this book Darkness or not Darkness at Noon but in in his book uh, The Ghost in the Machine he speaks about uh, from an evolutionist perspective clearly uh, just like Julian Huxley, but he speaks about what is the problem. He addresses the problem with mankind, and basically, there the problem with mankind. He says is with the development of our brain. It's a it's an evolutionary problem, and he says this. He says when when one contemplates the streak of insanity running through human history, it appears highly probable that Homo sapiens is a biological freak, the result of some remarkable mistake in the evolutionary process. The ancient doctrine of original sin, variants of which occur independently in the mythologies of diverse cultures, could be a reflection of man's awareness of his own inadequacy, of the intuitive hunch that somewhere along the line of his ascent, something has gone wrong. So what has gone wrong? Well, he says... Uh, here in this citation, uh, talking about the growth of the brain, the growth of the cortex, various parts of the brain, he, he asked the question, is it unreasonable to assume that at this explosive rate of the brain's development, which so widely overshot its mark, something may have gone wrong? More precisely, that the lines of communication between the very old and the brand new structures in the brain were not developed sufficiently to guarantee their harmonious interplay the hierarchic coordination of instinct and intelligence. Remember the mistake, remembering the mistakes which occurred in the evolution of earlier versions of nervous systems, the arthropod brain choking its elementary canal, the marsupial brain without adequate connections between the right and left hemispheres, we cannot help suspecting that something similar may have happened to us, human beings. And the combined evidence from neurophysiology, psychopathology and human history seem to support this hypothesis. So something happened in the development of our brains. As, uh, as ev the evolutionary process uh, continued and, and as the end part or the last segment of the evolutionary process uh, seemed to happen so rapidly, the growth of one part of our brain uh, happened too rapidly and, and outstripped the, the, the more primitive centers of our brain so that, that there's a lack of connection. And that's, that's what's caused the problems. And so he says, the rise of the human neocortex part of the brain is the only example of evolution providing a species with an organ which it does not know how to use. In other words, we have great power because of the structure of our brain, because of the way that it's evolved, but we don't know how to use that power. And that's led to uh, some serious problems in the way that humanity governs itself. And he gets into that. He says, the present generation is the hinge of history. We may now be in the time of the most rapid change in the whole evolution of the human race, either past or to come. 
the world has now become too dangerous for anything less than utopia. And that's a citation from the American biophysicist J.R. Platt. And what Kessler says is, we have heard such warnings before, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Cassandra, St. John of the Apocalypse, and so on down the centuries through Augustine, the prophets of the millennium, to Lenin and Oswald Spengler. And every century, there was at least one generation which flattered itself to be the hinge of history, to live at a time such as never was before, awaiting the blow of the last trumpet or some secular equivalent of it. And he talks about the get-ready man of James Thurber, uh, this man who wandered barefoot in his nightshirt through the dark streets of his hometown, waking people with the blood-curdling cry, get ready, get ready, the world is coming to an end. And so he says that, that we need to be careful, uh, we need to uh, be cautious with pronouncements about the uniqueness of our own time, but there are at least two good reasons which justify the view that humanity is going through a crisis that is unprecedented in its nature and magnitude in the whole of its past history. And he says that the first reason is quantitative and the second reason is qualitative. Now, what he means by that is that quantitatively, and this goes back again to Julian Huxley, it goes back to H.G. Wells, it goes back to uh, the eugenicists and the, the population control advocates, the, the quantitative problem is, is that there's too many people in this world and that we're uh, multiplying too rapidly. So that's quantity. It's a, it's a, a drum that keeps being beaten and until today that we are overpopulated and we need to find a way to get Earth's population down. And the evolutionary uh, development of humanity has not allowed us to, uh, to reach a point where we will automatically uh, decrease our, our reproductive drive, as happens apparently with other animals, uh, so they say. So uh, he says, in this respect man is unique, except perhaps for the suicidal lemmings. It seems almost as if in human populations, the ecological rule were reversed as compared to other animals. Uh, and I use that phrase, other animals, uh, in the way that they use it, because we are just one more stage in evolutionary development, uh, evolutionary development on a con uh, continuity with the animals. He continues, the more crowded they are in slums, ghettos, and poverty-stricken areas, talking about humans, the faster they breed. In the past, the stabilizing factor was not the type of feedback mechanism with regula regulates, which regulates the rate of breeding in animals, but the death harvests of war, pestilence, and infant mortality. Uh, so what we need to to do, he says, in response to this is use modern methods of birth control, uh, tampering with nature in this way. Uh, and he says that applied on a worldwide scale, as they must be if the impending catastrophe is to be prevented, they would amount to an artificially simulated adaptive mutation. So it's something that we do as human beings, but it's a part of evolution. And again, we see the connection here with Huxley. Uh, Huxley said that we are controlling our last stage of evolution. We've reached that point. 
And so in this third stage of evolution, we are the masters of our own fate. He says, our species became a biological freak when somewhere on the way it lost the instinctual controls which in animals regulate the rate of breeding. It can only survive by inventing methods which imitate evolutionary mutation. We can no longer hope that nation will provide the corrective remedy. We must provide it ourselves. So that's the first problem. Now, the first problem, uh, the second problem is the problem of violence and the problem of war. But he continues to, to discuss why we need to take these efforts, why we need to uh, take the initiative, why we are, in fact, really, uh, in other words, we're, we're, we're God ourselves. We're the ones who are in control. He says, since we cannot in the foreseeable future expect the necessary change in human nature to arise by way of a spontaneous mutation, that is, by natural means, we must induce it by artificial means. We can only hope to survive as a species by developing techniques which supplant biological evolution. We must, must search for a cure for the schizophysiology inherent in man's nature. So he combines physiology and schizophrenia. Uh, in this word. So we're, we're, we have this schizophrenia within us, uh, a divided personality uh, in which, you know, the one, the one side actually uh, is violent, is unpredictable, is uh, filled with, with hate and filled with anger and all of these things that we can't control that. Uh, and so we need to search for a cure for this schizophysiology inherent in our nature and the resulting split in our minds which led to the situation in which we find ourselves. And so if we fail to find this cure, he continues, the old paranoid streak in man combined with his new powers of destruction, and he's speaking here especially of the development of uh, nuclear warfare, nuclear power, all of the, the increases in human beings' power to be destructive, uh, this, uh, this old paranoid streak, combined with the new powers of destruction, must sooner or later lead to genosuicide, so suicide of the human race as a whole. But I also believe, he says, that the cure is almost within reach of contemporary biology, and that with the proper concentration of efforts, it might be produced within the lifetime of the generation which is now entering on the scene. And he says, I am aware that this sounds over-optimistic, in contrast to the seemingly over-pessimistic views just expressed on the prospect ahead of us if we persist in carrying on in our paranoic ways. I do not think these apprehensions are exaggerated, and I do not think that the idea of a cure for Homo sapiens is utopian. It is not inspired by science fiction, but based on a realistic assessment of the recent advances in several convergent branches of the life sciences. They do not provide a cure, but they indicate the area of research that may produce it. So we're on our way. We have developed many techniques. We've developed a great deal uh, in the sciences. And we are now able to uh, direct our own evolution to fight against these tendencies in human nature, which are the result of evolutionary mistakes. He says, nature has let us down. God seems to have left the receiver off the hook, and time is running out. 
To hope for salvation to be synthesized in the laboratory may seem materialistic, crankish, or naive. But to tell the truth, there is a Jungian twist to it. A Jungian twist. He's referring to Carl Jung. Uh, Carl Jung, who focused uh, a lot of his studies on uh, alchemy. So this Jungian twist, he says, for it reflects the ancient alchemist's dream to concoct the elixir vitae, the elixir of life. What we expect from it, however, is not eternal life, nor the transformation of base metal into gold, but the transformation of homo maniacus into homo sapiens. When man decides to take his fate into his own hands, that possibility will be within reach. So that's that same old ideology coming to the fore. We're in control. We govern our own evolution. We're, 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 we're cursed, not by a fall into sin, not by sinful tendencies, sinful habits, uh, a sinful nature, but we're cursed by this problem, this, this brain problem, uh, and, and uh, an evolutionary error. And so we now, having these large brains, we now need to deal with that. And we need to uh, fight this fight ourselves as the masters of our own fate. And so he says, what we are concerned with is a cure for the paranoic streak in what we call normal people, i.e. mankind as a whole, an artificially simulated adaptive mutation to bridge the rift between the phylogenetically old and new brain, between instinct and intellect, emotion and reason. If it is within our reach to increase man's suggestibility, it will, soon, it will be soon within our reach to do the opposite to counteract misplaced devotion and that militant enthusiasm, both murderous and suicidal, which we see reflected in the pages of the daily newspaper. And just to, to go back a little bit, when he, when he talks about this militant enthusiasm, misplaced devotion, he says that our biggest problem is not, for example, an isolated murderer or abuser uh, working on his own, uh, the violence of an individual uh, working for his own selfish purposes or to gain something or because he lacks self-control. But really the problem is, he says, in mass movements. So when we think that we're doing something positive, we're working towards a positive goal. Like, for example, in history, the Crusades or the Inquisition, uh, other examples of, of mass movements which have led to incredible disaster in this world. When people did these things for altruistic reasons, thinking that they were on God's side, he says. That's the problem. And the problem is that, that human beings have this imagination where, where we imagine that we're on the side of the angels, and when we imagine that, when we work together en masse as a group, we have this, this horrible tendency to cause incredible destruction. So he says, the most urgent task of biochemistry is the search for a remedy in the increasing range, as Saunders put it, of the spectrum of chemical agents which can be used for the control of the mind. All right. Let me repeat that. We need to look for uh, and we need to use biochemistry, a spectrum of chemical agents which can be used for the control of the mind. 
It is not, he continues, utopian to believe that it can and will be done. Our present tranquilizers, barbiturates, stimulants, antidepressants, and combinations thereof are merely a first step towards a more sophisticated range of aids to promote a coordinated, harmonious state of mind. Now, he wrote this book in 1967. Since that time, obviously, the science, medical science, has developed a whole other range of uh, medications, uh, pharmaceuticals, to impact the behavior of human beings. We can think of uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. We can think of any number of these disorders and uh, various types of depression, anxiety, which uh, the pharmaceutical companies have developed medications to deal with these things. Uh, So he's looking at uh, at the development or thinking that this is a positive uh, step that humanity can take to develop and use these chemical agents for the control of the mind. And so he says, what we want to do is is put humanity into a state of dynamic equilibrium in which thought and emotion are reunited and hierarchic order is restored. So dealing with that problem of the disconnect between the, the advanced part of the brain and the more reptilian or, or uh, the more basic or, or, or savage or undeveloped part of the human brain, using pharmaceutical methods to deal with that. And he says, finally, and this is the last quotation from the book before we go on to the article from last year. He says, I am aware that control of the mind And manipulating human beings, these two phrases, have sinister undertones. So yes, no doubt about it. Who is to control the controls? Manipulate the manipulators. Assuming that we succeed in synthesizing a hormone which acts as a mental stabilizer on the lines indicated, how are we to propagate its global use to induce that beneficial mutation? Using that that evolutionary language, it's a beneficial mutation that we are developing. Are we to ram it down people's throats or put it into the tap water? The answer seems obvious, he says. No legislation, no compulsory measures were needed to persuade Greeks and Romans to partake of the juice of the grape that gives joy and oblivion. Wine. Sleeping pills, pet pills, tranquilizers have, for better or worse, spread across the world with a minimum of publicity or official encouragement. They have spread because people like their effect and even accepted unpleasant or harmful after-effects. A mental stabilizer would produce neither euphoria, nor sleep, nor mescaline visions, nor cabbage-like equanimity, wouldn't turn a human being into a vegetable. It would, be in, it would, in fact, have no noticeable specific effect except promoting cerebral coordination and harmonizing thought and emotion. In other words, restore the integrity of the split hierarchy within the mind, within the brain. Its use would spread because people like feeling healthy rather than unhealthy in body or mind. It would spread as vaccination has spread and contraception has spread, not by coercion, but by enlightened self-interest. All right, now you may say to yourself, well, that's all well and good, but that's that's Arthur Kessler. I've never heard of Arthur Kessler. Uh, not very many people have heard of Arthur Kessler. 
that I know of. And, uh, you know, he wrote this book in 1967. So what's the big deal? What's the point? What, why, why talk about this? Well, first of all, when, when the book, the book was written in 67, published in 68, uh, 1972, Arthur Kessler was made commander of the order of the British empire. So basically it's almost like a, a knighthood that he received. So he was a, a highly respected, uh, man who was involved in the the upper echelons, the elites of society. So it takes time for for ideologies to trickle down from the academy, from the elites to the common the common person. And we see that again and again with various movements throughout history. The movement starts in the academy. It starts in the universities. And people think, well, that's crazy. That's who's ever going to do that? What's th- this is beyond the pale? Uh, we can think of, you may have heard of the Frankfurt School, and the Frankfurt ideologies that that came up in after the Second World War, when intellectuals emigrated to the United States from Germany and took up positions in American universities and began to promote critical theory. Which is, which is, as we can see today, with critical race theory, other forms of critical theory, having um, a great deal to say in our 21st century context and a great deal of influence. And so there's that trickle-down effect from the academy, from the intellectuals, from the elite to the masses, you could say. So it's important in that way. And it's it's... We see the, the, the development and, and the spreading of these ideologies in various ways. Now, you may have heard of something called the Overton Window. And the Overton Window is, is a window uh, in which there are acceptable views. So there's an acceptable view on the one side, an acceptable view on the, one, on the other side, and it shifts. It goes back and forth. And... You can see how the Overton window shifts. For example, you could think of the issue of homosexual marriage or and, and as that shifts and as it becomes something that's mentioned, something that's protested against, something that's that becomes more and more uh, apparent, more and more obvious in the public discussion, and it becomes more and more acceptable, and the Overton window shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts until it moves to a place where homosexual marriage is not only acceptable, it's also promoted and it must be praised and you cannot say anything against it lest you be pushed off into the margins of society or shut up or censored or silenced. So that's one example which then moves into gender ideology, transsexualism, the promotion of these ideologies. As things move, the Overton window continues to shift. So one generation says, oh, that's crazy. Now, there's some intellectuals that are, that are promoting this idea, but your average man in the street says, no, that's crazy. That's never going to happen. Well, we can see that it does happen, that the Overton window continues to move. And we see that with this issue as well. And that leads me to this article. And I'm going to, for those of you who are watching on Rumble, I'm going to share uh, the, the article on the screen and this article is from a website called theconversation.com. And the, the subtitle is Academic Rigor Journalistic Flair. And it's an article with this headline, Morality Pills 
may be the U.S.'s best shot at ending the coronavirus pandemic, according to one ethicist. And this article was published on August the 10th, 2020. The article of this author, uh, the author of this article is Parker Crutchfield. Parker Crutchfield is Associate Professor of Medical Ethics, Humanities and Law at Western Michigan University. What does he say? He says, COVID-19 is a collective risk. It threatens everyone, and we all must cooperate to lower the chance that the coronavirus harms any one individual. Among other things, that means keeping safe social distances and wearing masks. But many people choose not to do these things, making spread of infection more likely. When someone chooses not to follow public health guidelines around the coronavirus, they're defecting from the public good. It's the moral equivalent of the tragedy of the commons. If everyone shares the same pasture for their individual flocks, some people are going to graze their animals longer or let them eat more than their fair share, ruining the commons in the process. Selfish and self-defeating behavior undermines the pursuit of something from which everyone can benefit. Democratically enacted enforceable rules mandating things like mask wearing and social distancing might work if defectors could be coerced into adhering to them. But not all states have opted to pass them or to enforce the rules that are in place. My research in bioethics focuses on questions like how to induce those who are non-cooperative to get on board with doing what's best for the public good. To me, it seems the problem of coronavirus defectors could be solved by moral enhancement. Like receiving a vaccine to beef up your immune system, people could take a substance to boost their cooperative, pro-social behavior. Could a psychoactive pill be the solution to the pandemic? He continues, It's a far-out proposal that's bound to be controversial, but one I believe is worth at least considering, given the importance of social cooperation in the struggle to get COVID-19 under control. So the next section is called Public Goods Games Show Scale of the Problem. Evidence from experimental economics shows that defections are common to situations in which people face collective risks. Economics use public goods games to measure how people behave in various scenarios to lower collective risks, such as from climate change or a pandemic, and to prevent the loss of public and private goods. The evidence from these experiments is no cause for optimism. Usually everyone loses because people won't cooperate. This research suggests it's not surprising people aren't wearing masks or social distancing. Lots of people defect from groups when facing a collective risk. By the same token, I'd expect that as a group, we will fail at addressing the collective risk of COVID-19 because groups usually fail. For more than 150,000 Americans so far, this has meant losing everything there is to lose. But he says, don't abandon all hope. And I'll skip a part here and go on to promoting cooperation with moral enhancement. He says, He says this, he says, It seems that the U.S. is not currently equipped to cooperatively lower the risk confronting us. Many are instead pinning their hopes on the rapid development and distribution of an enhancement to the immune system, a vaccine. But I believe society may be better off, both in the short term as well as the long, by boosting not the body's ability to fight off disease, but the brain's ability to cooperate with others. What if researchers developed and delivered a moral enhancer rather than an immunity enhancer? 
Moral enhancement is the use of substances to make you more moral. The psychoactive substances act on your ability to reason about what the right thing to do is, or your ability to be empathetic or altruistic or cooperative. And he talks about oxytocin, uh, which may cause a person to be more empathetic and altruistic, more giving and generous. Or psilocybin, which is the active component of magic mushrooms, which was very much a part of the, the mind control experiments that were being done in the 1950s and 1960s in the context in which Arthur Kessler wrote his book. These substances, he says, have been shown to lower aggressive behavior in those with antisocial personality disorder and to improve the ability of sociopaths to recognize emotion in others. And so he says moral enhancements are an alternative to vaccines. He says there are pitfalls to moral enhancement. One is that science isn't developed enough. Uh, and very strange thing that he writes here. While oxytocin may cause some people to be more pro-social, it also appears to encourage ethnocentrism. It's very strange. So it, it has these positive, in his mind, positive effects, but also this negative effect. Well, does that mean that that negative effect is actually a positive effect? Well... And he, said, he says, and so it's probably a bad candidate for a widely distributed moral enhancement. But this doesn't mean that a morality pill is impossible. The solution to the underdeveloped science isn't to quit on it, but to direct resources to related research in neuroscience, psychology, or one of the behavioral sciences. But there's another problem. Defectors, I like that term, defectors, who need moral enhancement are also the least likely to sign up for it. Obviously, as some have argued, a solution would be to make moral enhancement compulsory or administer it secretly, perhaps via the water supply. These actions require weighing other values. Does the good of covertly dosing the public with a drug that would change people's behavior outweigh individuals' autonomy or choose uh, to choose whether to participate? Does the good associated with wearing a mask outweigh an individual's autonomy to not wear one? The scenario in which the government forces an immunity booster upon everyone is plausible, and the military has been forcing enhancements like vaccines or uppers upon soldiers for a long time. The scenario in which the government forces a morality booster upon everyone is far-fetched, but a strategy like this one could be a way out of this pandemic, a future outbreak, or the suffering associated with ta-da, climate change. That's why we should be thinking of it now. All right, so there's the, the modern application of Arthur Kessler's thesis in Ghost, The Ghost in the Machine. And here we can see how these ideas continue to circulate. They continue to bubble under the surface. They continue to be circulated among uh, society's elites and the intellectuals until they become... Uh, something that's more and more accepted. Now, is this is this acceptable to the majority of people now? Actually, I don't know. Perhaps, given how people how accepting people are of having their freedoms and their rights taken away from them in the current situation, perhaps it would be. But does that make it right? And does that make it well? First of all, the question is: is is, is it going to be useful? Well, the problem is is that these evolutionary thinkers think of morality in terms of uh, evolution, in terms of behavior, in terms of evolutionary problems that we need to deal with. 
and they completely ignore the problem of sin, which is really the, the big problem. In this case, it's not even the problem of sin. It's, the, it's, it's individual thinking, which is not a problem, but actually a blessing. It's individual freedom, which people are wanting, which is part of our, uh, our human nature as we're created in God's image to be free individuals. But these intellectuals, these uh, bioethicists, uh, think, don't think in those terms. And the more you study modern bioethics, you'll see that, that the, the ethics, the biblical ethics, Christian ethics, real ethics, have no role, have no place to play in modern bioethics. It's, it's pure pragmatism. It's what's going to work. It's what's going to have, uh, have positive results in their mind. And that's pretty scary. And so as we see that, and as we think, well, okay, the, the, the progress from the thinking of the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and, and, and even much before that, but, but in our modern era, uh, which may seem to be something that's very distant, a writer like Arthur Kessler, who may seem to be somebody who's, who's not important, actually becomes extremely important. And to see the development of this thinking and to see how it gets into the mainstream is very important for us to understand, to understand how these movements happen, to understand where this kind of thinking comes from, to also give us what we need to be able to fight against this, because this is dangerous. I mean, there's no other, there's no other way about it. It starts with a false premise, and from there, it can only lead to horrible results. So that's, that's Arthur Kessler, the ghost in the machine, and the modern-day application of that. As we see, and as we'll, we'll see in future episodes again, this transhumanist movement, the, the ideal of, of human beings influencing our own evolutionary process and creating a superhuman is very much central to our modern culture and the things that are going on uh, in uh, academic circles, in intellectual circles, in elite circles, to develop means of creating utopia. Even though they say, well, it's not going to create a utopia, and they always bring up the idea that it's not a utopia, but it's utopian ideology nonetheless. And as I said in the episode on, on utopias, any effort at creating heaven on earth will only result in disaster. So I hope you found this, this helpful as, as you think about these issues and as you think about and as you seek to understand uh, current modern day movements and, and trends that, that these things all have roots. The roots are, the, the ideologies are rooted in a lie. And as ideologies that are rooted in lies, they will only lead to not heaven on earth, but something more akin to hell on earth. And they will lead to more repression. And, and specifically, when we think about ourselves as Christians, we need to stand up against this. Because we need to stand up for the truth, first of all. And we see where these kind of things go, to the removal of freedom, to taking away our freedom, which centrally is the freedom to worship. What if... The bioethicists, the next generation of bioethicists say, well, we've, we've discovered 
this drug, this pharmaceutical concoction, which will take away people's urge to fight for their faith. Because we want peace. Because we want prosperity. We want all the world to live in harmony. What if, what if that's the next step? That's, that, that's no doubt something that they'll be working on. So we need to, as I continually say, Daniel 11, verse 32, stand firm and take action. And may God give us what we need to do that. Thanks for watching. If you've found this episode helpful or encouraging or challenging, please do pass it on, on either on Rumble or on Anchor or wherever you're watching a podcast. And may God grant us wisdom. And may he also work wisdom uh, in the hearts of those who, who don't have wisdom, the wisdom that only comes from the Holy Spirit, so that these kind of movements will be destroyed and annihilated before they even begin. Thanks for watching, and I look forward to talking to you next time.